You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Is there anything that we can learn from the Jeffrey Epstein story? I cannot stop thinking about it. I cannot stop thinking about the dreadfulness and awfulness of what he did and who he was, how he conned the world into thinking he was some great philanthropist and some great mind, how he was requiring sexual release three times a day, how the cover-up, it's a mess. It's disgusting. It's America at our worst. And I can't stop thinking about it. And when we were on Martha's Vineyard over the weekend, guess what? His lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, he was not three feet from us walking up and down the beach, up and down the beach, up and down the beach. I wanted to throw sand at him, but that's for cowards. Anyway, what a mess we're in. So it's really extra important that I celebrate the five things that made my life better this week because uh, because I need them. Maybe you do too. Okay, here we go. Oh, before we go, our guest today is Erica Jong. Erica Jong! She's coming into the studio momentarily. I can't wait to talk to her. And now, my five things. Number one, eating outdoors. When it's not pouring or excruciatingly hot, it's so much nicer to sit outside, especially if you go out to dinner. And as noisy as New York streets usually are, it's almost always quieter than the restaurants themselves. Number two, the knowledge, just the knowledge of and the anticipation for the Downton Abbey movie, right? Are you with me? It's keeping me going. It's keeping me going. All I had to do was see the trailer for that, and I just felt better. It's like Robert Mueller, but something to feel good about and not worry about. So Downton Abbey is coming, and that's number two. Number three is the lemon, the fruit. Lemon is the perfect seasoning for anything. I love it. I love it on chicken, on pasta, on roasted potatoes, on melon, on blueberries. You know, it's just lemon. It's fresh. It's good. Fresher is better, but it has seeds, and the bottle of lemon juice is good, too. And I realize I depend on it. Number four, the documentary called Knock Down the House. I saw it last night. It is a documentary directed by Rachel Lears, which follows four political races waged by women who came from outside the system to represent working class people. Not one of them had a chance in hell. Not Amy Valella, not Cori Bush, not Paula Jean Swearingen, not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Watching the unexpected victory of AOC is thrilling in this movie. No one was more surprised than she, but watching the losses of the others was as emotional, too, and crushing. It's a film with highs and lows, and most interesting is the low-tech opportunities to enter politics from small-town America. No matter your party, your affiliation, your bias, this is a film about humanity, and it's on Netflix. And number five, 
When comedian John Mulaney praises something or someone is funny and brilliant, I pay attention. And that is how I discovered number five, the comedian Jacqueline Novak's one-woman show, Get On Your Knees. With the most extraordinary uses of language, the show is essentially about sex, the oral kind. I'm going to urge my guest today, Erica Jong, to see it, and all of you if you can. Jacqueline Novak does an hour or so about oral sex, but she talks about great books and her youth in Chappaqua, New York, and her love of the paranormal. After a sold-out run at the Cherry Lane Theater, it is moving to the Lucille Lortel for at least another month. She is breathtaking. Erica Jong has been not only at the forefront of feminist literature since the 1970s, she is still one of its most prominent voices. A poet, a novelist, an essayist, she has been chronicling her life and times in the most sensuous and what the kids call sex positive of ways. From Fear of Flying, published in 1973, to Fear of Dying, published in 2015, Erica creates fully formed, realistic plots and characters who take life by its throat. Welcome, Erica. Erica, it's so wonderful to see you in person. I haven't seen you in a while, and I feel so connected to you, not just because I've been reading Fear of Dying and The World Began With Yes, but because I also follow you constantly on social media, as you do me. (laughs) I love Twitter. But I do too. My but daughter is a star of Twitter. She has actually become the breakout star on the East Coast of Twitter. Your Absolutely. daughter, Molly Jong my daughter, Fast. Mo- Molly Jong Fast is going to turn 41 this year. That's it? Yes. That's amazing. And she published three novels in her early 20s and ev- at Random House, Taka as my grandmother would say. (laughs) And everybody jumped on her in a really mean way, and they said, if she weren't Erica Jong's daughter, blah, 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 all the young women. And she was very sad about that. And I said, it's because you're my daughter. But of course, she only half believed me. Mm -hmm. She had three kids. She always wanted kids young because she's an only child. Right. Only children want three children, right? They, they were lonely. So she immediately had three kids. And her husband, who was a professor of Elizabethan literature, said, Erica, we have three kids. I'm going into the investment business, <laughs> which was... His father's breakthrough, his father had a firm called um, Alternate Investment Group, and he created his own firm called Rethink Education since he had been a Yale PhD, since he had taught in colleges. It worked. He wouldn't go into his father's firm. He was too rebellious. But he's so lovely. He's such a good guy. Your stories both real and fictional have such uh, are so inspiring because there's great joy at the end of them. Oh, I'm Molly, such a lucky person. You are lucky, but also but also you've done so much with it. I mean, Molly, who is very open about it, had an addiction problem when she was very young. Very young. You had to deal with the heartbreak of sending your daughter to rehab when she was a kid. And she got all that done, 
And she's an incredible mother. Incredible. She's an incredible political voice. Right. Hilarious and political. And funny. And funny. She's writing for the new Playboy. She's, She's happily married. She's a contributing married. editor of the new Playboy. And we went out there to L.A. and she did my second Playboy interview. My first was in 74, <laughs> right? Right. So she did the update on the Playboy interview. It was hilarious oh, and wonderful. I bet. And, and you have very... a great relationship with one another, which is every mother's dream, yeah. and with your grandchildren. We and... worked very hard on that relationship, I have to tell you. Uh-huh. It was not easy. I mean, we went through all the mother-daughter stuff. But we were determined. If you both approached that relationship with the same desire to make it work, yeah, it can work. I oh, tell there myself. Are times when, <laughs> yeah, there are times when we arrived in L.A. and I said, what, we're not sharing a room? She said, this was for the Playboy thing. Right. She said, Mommy, I'm grown up. I have my own room. You have your own room. I said, okay, but this Sunday is Mother's Day. Can we have breakfast? And she said, okay. Now, she has gazillions of friends in L.A. Mm -hmm. She loves the program in L.A., and she knows everyone in L.A. through the program Mm -hmm. or her work. Mm -hmm. So I was like second choice or third, (laughs) but... I said, Mother's Day brunch, okay, we'll do that. And the rest of the time I called my friends and she called hers. Yeah, and you had a great time. We had a great time. And you have great relationships with her kids, individual relationships, which is great. You don't know this, I don't think, but I just became a... a, Great grandmother? No, not a great one, just a regular old one. Uh, my son and his wife had a baby three months ago. So, and the weird thing is, his middle name is Leo. <gasps> Where does he live? He now lives in Beverly Hills. Okay. Well, yeah. that's okay. That's an easy flight. It's an easy flight. It's, it's not a as nonstop. Good. Yeah, but it would have been nice if they'd stayed in New York for a year or so. Well, you know what people say about grandchildren? Should have had them first. <laughs> right. Well, so far, he's a bore. He just eats and sleeps. So I don't care <laughs> yet. And his name is? Simon Leo. Oh, how wonderful. And I'm looking forward to getting to know him um, eventually. But... I'm very happy. I'm very happy about him, and he's adorable, and like all babies. And, when you have a grandchild, that's when you stop start worrying about Trump and nuclear weapons. Oh, I started that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need this. He has no idea about nuclear weapons. He says, why do we have them if we can't use them? He thinks they're toys. Yes. But he also has never read the Constitution. Oh, right. Of course. Well, that's a small fact. But he said to somebody when he was running, we have all these nuclear weapons. Why can't we use them? Duh. Duh. I was in Europe when Chernobyl happened. Oh, wow. And uh, I know a little boy from England who got thyroid cancer after Chernobyl. So... I'm aware through my own experiences that radiation was everywhere in Europe. 
right? Right. I could be radiated right now. I was in Italy, my favorite country, but there were clouds of radiation going over Europe. Right. And just because you couldn't see them doesn't mean they weren't there. Right. When you think about Trump and you write about Trump and react to government decisions of all kinds, do you ever think of moving to Italy Actually, I know you don't want to be away from Molly and the family, but do you ever think that all of you might want to move? I think all the time of moving to Venice, which I know so well. I think also of moving to Montreal because my husband is fluent in French and loves speaking French. I'm fluent in Italian, and I love speaking Italian. So those are the two things. But Ken always says to me, Darling, I'd love to be in Montreal. Good food, people who speak French, uh, not as boring as Toronto, (laughs) which is boring, I can tell you. Clean. Clean. Lovely. Margaret Atwood, my old friend, is there. Many wonderful writers and filmmakers are there, Mm -hmm. but boring. So, so what? So what's so my husband's plan B? My husband says, "You will never move to a city where your grandchildren are not." Right, and it's true. Right, right. You know, I I want to see them grow up. Right, and they're growing so fast that I mean, you can barely catch up. Perhaps. Perhaps they'll think of going to university in another country, mm-hmm. and then and then that might open the door. But let's talk. Let's talk. Max is, studied ancient Greek, Greek in Florence, so he's a little um, language genius. Oh wow! Ancient Greek, Hebrew, wow, Mandarin. He's like a kid who has a real affinity for language. So. So he'll end up somewhere where yeah. he can use those right. skills May, and gifts. Well, ancient Greek is a little tough. No, but, but. you can. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I don't. But, uh, yeah. Well, you could probably, if he could learn ancient Greek in Italian, he could do anything. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk about Isadora Wing and Vanessa Wonderman. <laughs> Isadora Wing was the heroine of Fear of Flying. Mm-hmm. which was the first important feminist novel which al- which allowed a woman of intelligence of education of sophistication to really love sex and to be comfortable in her body it was a revelation your novel as you know and Kind of changed the landscape for... Female desire. Yes. And talking about female desire has always been suppressed. They could express male desire. Right. Female desire has always been suppressed. And taboo. And taboo. In every culture. Yeah, and even Doris Lessing, who in the Golden Notebook wrote, I don't like the smell of my own menstrual blood. And that was a beginning for me. I mean, but pleasure, she didn't really write about. She did say, I can't reach an orgasm if I'm not in love with the man. Mm -hmm. That was a beginning. But she didn't really get into women's desire. 
And when you when you turned in the manuscript to Fear of Flying, yeah. were there editors who were uncomfortable or nervous or thought it would not sell or were hesitant to release it? Well, the first agent who read it, I could name her, but I'm a nice person. <laughs> Uh, Lynn Nesbitt. Oh, uh-huh. Said, this book will never sell. I won't represent it. But when it went to Holt Reinhardt, Aaron Asher was my editor. Aaron was Philip Roth's editor. He was Saul Bellow's editor. He was not a prude. And Aaron said... Well, there's a story about Aaron, which is kind of interesting. I turned in my first written novel to him. It was called The Man Who Murdered Poets. Huh. It was very well written. It was an homage to Nabokov. My, my narrator was male. He wanted to go and kill the most famous poet of his generation, like Robert Lowell or somebody, to take on his poetic powers. Aaron read it. He said, it's beautifully written. I won't publish it. <laughs> and I said, if it's beautifully written, why won't you? He said, go down the street to Farrar Strauss. They'll publish it. I won't. And I said, if you think it's so good, why won't you? He said, Erica, you have to go home and write a novel in the voice of those amazing poems. Wow. And I have to tell you that at that moment, I put the Man Who Murdered Poets on a shelf. I never looked at it again. I knew Aaron was right. You know how sometimes it, that was a blessing mm -hmm. in my life, mm -hmm. a real blessing, because at that time, women wrote books about men. And Aaron said, why do you write books about men? And I said, because they get all the reviews, and uh we don't. And he said, but your poetry is something new. Write a novel in that voice. He's so right. And you did. And I put aside that book without a thought. Isn't that amazing? You knew he was right. I the knew. It clicked. I, it clicked. I knew he was right. So if I count my blessings, Aaron Asher is one of my blessings. Wow. I love that story. And I love the idea that a man urged you to go forward with this voice and the he voice... He was really extraordinary, Aaron. But there are no editors like him today. Mm. Really. I can tell you who really read who don't say, does she have a television show? That... How big is her social media right. following? Right. You know, they ask that now. I know. It's, it's, it's insulting. We, I mean, publishing, the publishing business... Has changed. So much. Yeah. And, and it really is for people who don't like to read. Yeah. And reading is the, what do they call it? A bug, not the, not the design, or it's a flaw, it's, not the rule. It's crazy. When, when we were younger, I know you're younger than me, but when we were younger, Gore Vidal and Updike were on the bestseller list. Right? All the time. Literate writers were on the bestseller list. That's and, right. It was literature. Now what you see on bestseller lists is often... Nora Roberts. <laughs> Nora Roberts. Nora yeah, Roberts. Yeah. 
it's di- the it, ten it's, day diet, the four chick, day diet. It's chiclet. Yeah, it's, which the publishers began to uh, hardcover. Oh, they at put, a certain point in time, they basically took the the genre stuff, romance. Some romance is good. I'm not against it. When I was president of the Authors Guild, I tried to recruit romance writers to be part of us. I'm not a snob about romance. Some of it can be well-written. But basically, they hard-covered the genre books because they thought they'd sell better. And that brought the whole level down. Well, it's the exceptional, lonely exceptional book that cuts through the noise and and also the the 24-hour cycle of news that is impenetrable. That doesn't interview writers. No, it doesn't interview Unless writers. Unless they're political. If right now in the Trump revolution and revolution against Trump, they will interview you if you write a book like Joanne Reed's book, The Man Who Sold America. And I'm a great fan of Joanne Reed. I think she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think her writing is interesting, too, although not literary. You know, she's a journalist on right. TV and, and a very, very good one. I have no complaints about Joy. There are tons of books that have been coming out since 2017 that are all Trump-related. They do sell well, whether it's Michael Wolff, whether it's probably Amorosa's book sold well about Trump. I mean, it's We're magic- hungry to know about how this moron got <laughs> so much power. He he That he got. My big question is... How did the Republicans who once disdained him, how did they become such suck-ups? How did Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell become his... Rick Wilson knows all. Oh, yes. He... These, you know, there's a whole tribe of Republicans. They support my daughter, by the way, who is... They at... show up at her parties that right. she has invited me to, and... You have to go to her salon. She has the best political salon in in New York. Oh, I know that. I mean, I've heard about them. You have to go. It's great fun. Um, Can I be your plus one? Please. Okay. Next time there's an invitation, I will take you as my plus one because Ken doesn't want to go. Well, I'll tell you something. (laughs) This age of, of... Molly's age is so interesting because this is the moment where Democrats are following Republicans, Republicans are following Democrats because of the tremendous impact and damage of Trump. Parties don't matter anymore. Right. I mean, George Conway, he's kind of heroic. He's I, think I don't he understand is. how his marriage works. Do you? I don't know. I'm very interested in knowing how they get on. Me too. But Kellyanne makes a lot of money. Yes. And George doesn't have to. Right. And maybe that's it. You know, I have been with men where I was the breadwinner. And it's a different dynamic. I mean, I've been married four times. So I've known every dynamic. Would you please tell our listeners, (laughs) speaking of which about the prenup with your husband, Ken, and what you did to it when you did, and when you did it? Well, 
Ken proposed to me after he met my mother, which I will write, I am writing about in my autobiography. He said, he met my mother, he met my father. They had a very Hamish Jewish humor connection. They Uh loved each other. And then he went in and saw my mother, and my mother gave him the evil eye. (laughs) What another guy, right? That was. How soon between husband three was this? I had been single for a decade. Oh. And I had gone out with everybody you can name, um, people who wanted me because they thought I was rich, people who wanted me. No, they don't understand Jong. Of they course. don't understand that writers are never rich, rich. But anyway, um, they wanted me because I was an icon, or maybe they'd never read anything of mine. Who knows? I went out with everybody, and I was completely convinced I would never marry again. They were all nice, but not to marry. Right. Okay. Some were good at, good at sex. Some were good at conversation, and I formed the theory that you needed three men. You needed one man to fuck your brains out. You needed another man to have great conversations with. He could even be gay. Mm -hmm. And you needed a a third man who was very supportive and loving and best friend. Could be gay, could be straight. Right. And if you had those three men... You were fine. Right. Okay. So when I met Ken, I had been single for almost a decade, and I didn't really want to get married again. And we were driving away from my parents' house in Saugatuck in Westport, and Ken stopped the car, and he said, I knew I was in love with you. I knew I wanted to spend my life with you, but I couldn't figure out why you would need me. I met your mother. You need me. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful proposal. Because <laughs> my mother was so critical, so difficult. She was a painter, a realistic painter, who didn't get famous because the timing was wrong. Her best friend from art school, Lee Krasner, yeah, got famous. That could be a problem. Right. Yeah. Okay. My mother was brilliant. I mean, my mother only made seven-letter wor- seven words in Scrabble. Incredible. I mean, she could write sonnets. She could... There was nothing she couldn't do. But when I got famous, she said to me, when I read your novels, I feel I am writing... I am reading your my obituary. When I read your poetry, I know you're a great poet. Uh-huh. That was my mother. Wow. Okay. 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 My mother gives could, a little, takes a little. Right. Yeah. And my mother could write good poetry, I have to tell you. Okay. So after Ken said, I know you need me, he said, Will you marry me? And I said, Yes. <laughs> and he said, Yes. And then we drove home in silence to my house in Weston which I still have, and I'm trying to sell because it doesn't work for our life anymore. But anyway, so we get home to my house, and we've pledged right to each other. We're there. And I look at him, he looks at me, and we don't take it back. 
And four months later, we got married in Vermont at his country place. And um, we were married by a female justice of the peace in Warren, Vermont. And he said the Harriet in Hebrew, which is, I mean, for your listeners who are not Jewish, it's really saying, I take you as my woman. I will take care of you. You will take care of me, etc. in Hebrew. And in Warren, Vermont, there weren't a lot of people who knew Hebrew. But the people who knew it knew what it meant, which is... It's so touching. You take a woman, you give her something of value, and she's your bride. That's a nice story. What about the prenup, Erica? Tell the story of... Well, at that... Wasn't there the statement about... He's a lawyer. About, he's, he's a, a lawyer. divorce lawyer. Right. Didn't, didn't you say this is the triumph of op- hope over reality we, or something? Yeah. No, hope over experience. Yeah, over experience. I send out a uh, triumph of hope over experience, <laughs> which I think is a line of Samuel Johnson or some 18th century person I studied. Mm-hmm. Triumph of... I think it's Samuel Johnson. I can't remember. You know, my degree is in 18th century. Erica um, is a Barnard girl. We're very, no, but I went to Columbia Graduate School. Right, and true. I And now have a Ph.D. honoris causa. Oh, you're I don't, Dr. John. I'm Dr. John because my darling son-in-law got me a degree. Okay, from okay. SUNY. Okay. Doesn't matter. Anyway. It's beautiful. Anyway, I'm a doctor for what it's worth. Well, let me just ask you about this thing on my neck. No. So, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, the, well, anyway, Erica and Ken tore up their prenup. Well, what we did was I said to him, look, I don't believe in marriage, but I love you and I'm going to marry you, but we need a prenup. And he said, okay, we'll get a different lawyer who will write a prenup. And we hired a different lawyer. He's a divorce lawyer. I didn't want him writing it. Right. Very suspicious. Yes. I was. Of course. <laughs> and then be. I'd been married and married and married, and my first husband went crazy. My second husband, I adored Alan Jong, but he had no sense of humor. Problem. Uh, problem. My third husband freaked out when we had Molly, wasn't Problem. ready to be give up being the baby. You know, I went through everything. Right. Okay. And so I said, can we need a prenup? And he said, no problem, prenup, whatever you want, you can have. And um, 10 years later, we burned the prenup in a walk. I love that. That's so traditional. Of right. <laughs> you are and such a copycat. And who were the witnesses? Who? Woody and Sunyi. Ah! <laughs> really? <laughs> I swear. And oh, I would have liked to have been a fly on that wall. And and then um, who else? Many, many. So it was a big event. Huge. A catered event. It was Did a, people eat bits of, of um, wok fried prenup? No, 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 no. There was, and also Arthur Miller and Inga Morath. Oh, my. And... It was a star-studded group, right? Sadly, Arthur and Inga are both gone. I right. adored them. Um, but 
all those people are gone. Not Woody and Sunyi, although Woody's been having a very tough time. And That's a discussion for another day. Right. Before I continue our conversation with Erica Jong, I want to tell you about our sponsor, The Field TV. The Field is a boutique advertising agency and production company that knows how to sell things. They create content that entertains, explains, and informs their audience about the benefits and virtues of their clients' products and services. I know this because I've been working with them on and off for the past six years as a storyteller and a consultant. They even produce this podcast for me. Do you have something to sell? Want to grow your company? Check out their website at thefieldtv.com or give them a call at 212-253-2888. And now, back to our discussion with Erica Jong. Let me talk about The World Began With Yes, your most recent book of poetry. I knew you first as a poet, actually. I don't know if other in the world know that I was wondering if you would read Poetry is Better Than Xanax. (laughs) I love this. Oh, God. Let's see. Poetry is Better Than Xanax. You want to live a life of poetry, even flying across the country in a plane called Virgin. You long for the clouds, the mute staring moon, to talk to you in metaphor reassuring you in this age of anarchy and mindless destruction of all will turn out to be the best in the end. I cannot promise that the sun will not explode or the moon not wither, but I promise that your poet's dreams are your flying carpet, past virginity, mortality, despair, So hold on while your hair catches fire and fly without fear. I learned this trick. Incredible. I just got shivers. Thank you so much. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I regard writing as my meditation. People that say to me, why do you write so much? And I say, I can't not write because... Why do you write so much? Like that's something you should apologize for? Yes. Drop them. Those are not friends. Yeah. The thing that's so extraordinary, you wrote Fear of Dying in 2015. This book of poetry was published more recently, this year. They're so perfectly read together. Yes. There's so many themes that are interwoven. My mother's death. Your mother's death, which is something I know you've been unpacking for years in different ways. But also, yes, the openness to yes. I thought of Molly Bloom in your book. I thought of Molly Bloom in the poems. Yes, yes, taking a chance, looking for adventure. That's what you represent to me, Erica. And it's such a It's such a gift to women. Well, you know, we're so scared always. We're living through a very curious time. I mean, I I have great empathy for the Me Too movement, but I've never been raped. 
Well, one doesn't have to have been raped to have been But I did not. I had a grandfather who loved me and a father who loved me, and neither one of them went in my pants. Yeah. I ha- No, really. I mean, I have many friends who cannot say that. And in fact... Is that right? Yes. Fathers and grandfathers? Yes. Um. I have one particular friend in L.A., and I won't mention her name because she's writing about the fact that her mother's brother, her uncle, molested her constantly, okay? So I know this is real. I would never deny it. But I did not have that experience. And I I have to say, why? Because I liked men who liked words and music. I didn't want to be with a man who didn't like words and music. So I wouldn't go out with a guy just because he was a hunk. And every man I have been with, and I mean my first husband, my second husband, my third husband, and Ken, were interested in my pleasure. They were interested in foreplay. They were interested in my having an orgasm. I never had a man who wasn't. But in between, in that decade, I'm sure there were men who thought, well, she likes sex. I'm going to show her. I mean, in a way, you pose a dare to some kind of creepy guy. And I I was never raped at that time in my life because even though I'm, I went out with men who were imperfect, I never was raped because, and I don't know why, but I can tell you, because I'm too brainy. Men like that didn't like me. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you the truth. You know, you go out with somebody who's who's talking about Saul Bellow and John Keats, they're not interested in raping you. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was literature that saved me. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. I don't. Let's talk about, let's talk about Vanessa before we get to your five things, the, the protagonist of Fear of Dying, because she has everything except she's surrounded by death. She has reached a kind of complacent moment with her husband Mm -hmm. and wants to feel at her 60th birthday that she has vitality and she's about to mess everything up. Right. She wants sex so much, and he has had a heart condition and he can't get an erection. And I was so scared she was going to screw it up. I really was. I don't want to give it away. But talk about how you feel sexual desire in a 60-year-old is different from sexual desire in a 30-year-old, if you can. You and know, if you can't, no one if can. You have <laughs> a, if you have a partner who enjoys your pleasure, even if he can't get an erection, he will find a way to make you come. And I know women will doubt that, but the fact of the matter is that a man who loves you is going to find a way to pleasure you. But the idea of older bodies being sexual is something that we're not used to reading about. 
right? Because we're so superficial and we're so visual and... Look, we, we're it's aware. not going to be Donald Trump who likes Playboy, old Playboy centerfolds, right? Mm-hmm. He wants a woman in a porn magazine or a porn movie. I never have met him. I wouldn't want to meet him. He's not my type, okay? <laughs> I had many friends who went to his parties. They came back and told me, tons of blow. Tons of blow. He is not sober, Cocaine everywhere. Okay. Wow. Um, I had many friends who went to his parties, okay? And he is not as advertised, clean and sober. All right, that's his thing. I know the difference. But he's so stupid, I couldn't go to bed with him. Well... I can't go to bed with a man who's dumb. Yeah. I'm sure you can't. No, it's not my favorite thing. Okay. Yeah. I right. mean, but but do do you still get flack and pushback for loving sex and writing about sex? You can't anymore, right? I have to tell you that my books are now in Arabic. Okay, case closed. Right. And and a woman a, a journalist from Egypt is coming to meet me in September. She was the first Arabic reader to call me on the phone and say, how did you get the nerve? And my books are published in Mandarin. And they are perhaps more discreet. But even early on, Fear of Flying was was amazing in Japan. People loved... I mean... it's only lately that I'm published in Arabic and Mandarin, but when I, f- in the 70s, the Japanese readers discovered me, women readers. So, I mean, they're more open about sex in some ways and more closed about sex in other ways. Nudity doesn't bother them. They go to baths. They go to hot springs. So in a way, the Japanese are different, right? Then we, and even older women, go to hot springs for God's sake. And people get massages and people and do what they have to do. And it's a much less uptight culture about nudity. You go to Karawizara in, um, in the Alps um, under Mount Fuji, and people go down to the basement of the hotel and they take all their clothes off with two sexes involved. So maybe we're the most puritanical about bodies. The Japanese sure aren't. Wow. What do you know? They aren't. My father had a business in Japan, so I spent quite a lot of time in Japan. And we went to Mount Fuji one summer and when we were in Japan forever. And people take off their clothes. Now, I was in Tokyo just once, Mm -hmm. uh, but I was in that wonderful hotel that was in Lost in Translation, the Hayato, Grand Hayato. Right. And there was a beautiful... I love the name, Hayato. Hayato. And there is a gorgeous pool on the roof. And I, you know, the hotel gives you all kinds of robes and slippers and stuff to wear in the special elevator that goes to the pool. To the spa, yeah. And And I got in the elevator, and there was a gentleman in the elevator, 
and he got off and decided he'd wait for the next one. He didn't want to take an elevator with a, a female. And he was not a Hasidic Jew. He was a Japanese <laughs> businessman. So, you know, I I came away thinking, oh, they're even more pr- prudish than we are. But, but they're, they're saying not. they're not. And if Just you go guy. to Atami, which is the hot springs that Japanese um, honeymooners go to, Atami, Everybody's naked. What do you know? What do you know? Well, people have to be comfortable in their own in skin. In their own bodies. And they their really own do. body. And they we need do. and and you know, I notice from fashion the, magazines that American publishers are fashion uh, media publishing industrial complex is now showing real women in ads, right? Which is something to behold. A few, a few, a few. It's like African American women are allowed to be buxom. Are are white women allowed to be buxom? There is a kind of double standard going on that is ghastly, I think. Is it possible for a woman to show a breast sliced off? Well, there's there's something else. Many women have had breast cancer, yes, and have not had reconstruction. When I see Vogue allowing a woman with a with one breast missing, then I'll say we've changed. Yeah, I'm not one of them, thank God, or goddess, but. I have friends who have not had reconstruction and didn't want it and said, okay, I have one breast. I'll live with it. When the fashion magazines can shoot pictures of those women, I'll say we're different. Right now, we're in a kind of double thing. Black women are allowed to be Zoftric. White women are not. And... But we're not showing all the differences. We're not showing women who are, um, what's the word for it, LBGTQ. Mm-hmm. We're not showing women who grew up as girls and decided they wanted to be boys. We're not showing... But a lot of models started out as men. Right. And are trans women. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? That there are trans women models, but not trans men models that I know of. Exactly. So it's the same old thing. The men are allowed to become women. The women are not allowed to get masculine. So we still have a double standard. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I don't want to be mean about it because they're getting better about plumpness if you're a woman of color. Um, And that's a good thing, definitely. But what about trans? What about people with disabilities? If having one breast is a disability, which I doubt that it is, Mm -hmm. it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Most women have reconstruction because they don't want to be without. And I have a dear friend who had a a double mastectomy and reproduction all at the same time. And she's that was what she wanted, and that's what she did. But not everybody wants to fit in in that way. They want to flaunt it Mm -hmm. and say, I am a survivor. And women ought to be allowed to do that also. 
I once saw the comedian Tignataro do her live show, and after she had both breasts removed um, uh, due to cancer, she said her breasts were so little, and she kept making fun of them, so they fought back. (laughs) (laughs) And she would open her shirt at the end of her show and walk on the stage. I think that's lovely. It was really dramatic and wonderful and freeing and she's alive and what's more important than that it doesn't matter really what we look like it matters that we are alive and healthy after all and if and if you are flat chested because of surgery so be it who cares who cares it's somebody who really loves you yeah doesn't care doesn't care well i have loved talking to you and seeing you in person and Erica, it's time to hear what things make your life better. Five, or and in your case, six. So <laughs> what? you oh. gave us six. So, and that's fine because you're you, but let's start with number one. Writing is my meditation and keeps me from going mad. And really and truly, why do I write? Because if I didn't write, I'd be... Absolutely a basket case. Yeah. How would you fit all your reactions and and observations? What would you do with them? Exactly. Number two. My grandchildren remind me to be playful. My grandchildren, who are now the youngest, are 11 and a half twins, um, remind me that it's not that serious, right? That... We're going to get through this horrible period in politics. Hopefully, we'll get through it without bombs and radiation that kills everything. Um, And you see them a lot, right? Those grandchildren of yours? Well, now they're in school until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So that That blows. But (laughs) we're going to Santa Fe. Molly and Matt and me... And the three kids. We're going to Santa Fe next week. Oh, cool. So we're going to spend a week um, together. Ken doesn't want to go. Ken doesn't want to go because Ken is dealing with Parkinson's. Oh, I'm so sorry. I did not know. And last time when we went to Antigua, it was fine. We, We borrowed Ken and Barbara Follett's house in Antigua. They're really good friends of 40 years and it was fine because they sent wheelchairs but he he doesn't have a tremor right and he walks pretty well but when you have to change planes he gets nervous yeah i get it he doesn't have a lot of symptoms he's so lucky he walks well. I bought him a silver-handled cane. It's beautiful. All he needs is a top hat to go with it. <laughs> but um, but he's really um, feeling, I can't walk through museums. There's a great Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe that I adore. Um, he's a little self-conscious, but he's going to work it through, I know. I know he will. Which leads us to number three. Going to Italy reminds me I am allowed to be human. Why do I love Italy? It is the country that says a human being is a human being is a human being is not perfect. 
and that's what I love about Italy. And and Ken goes with you to Italy. Yes. And, and you go to Venice. Right. And you stay at the most gorgeous divine hotel only, with the hugest only, swimming pool. Only when I've sold a book. Ah. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> that would have to yeah. I took I took um Bet there for three years in a row and her brothers were furious. But Bet is my granddaughter. And she we took Molly and I took her to the Cipriani because she's such a good traveler. The boys are not. Okay, so you the know. boys are terrible travelers, but they're good at other things. But they're getting better just... at traveling. And I took Darwin on my German book tour, and that was a good fit for him, right? It was perfect. And I took Max to Rome when he was six. You're a good so grandma. So I, you know, and we stayed in the Hotel de Russie, and it had a little place where you could get burgers in the garden and. So he's he's had his his uh, Italy. Uh, number four is a surprise. I love it though. Never cooking allows me to find men who are good cooks, including my dear husband Ken, who seems to have gone on strike. <laughs> oh wait a minute! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't cook at all. Ken cooked his way through Julia Child when he was in college. He went to Brown and he found that he could cook his way through Julia Child and learn to do everything. He was interested in that. Now, not so interested. We have a housekeeper. Uh, he's lost interest because he's adjusting to a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. But he will get back to it, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, that's nice that you don't have to cook. Number five. Oh, God. Buying designer clothes and living through the panic attacks of the charge bills reminds me that I will always be an Ashkenazic Jew. <laughs> they, they are now trying to di discover whether in our genes we remember all the holocausts through which we have lived. Seriously? Yes. Wow. If you read Simon Shama's book, Jews of the Ancient World, you realize that what happened to the Jews in the ancient world was they would come to a place, make the place really prosperous, and then when they got super, super rich, they'd be expelled and their gold would be taken. And this happened, if you, if you read Shama, and I'm very interested in ancient history. That's how I wrote my Sappho book and stuff. Everything that happened in the Nazi Holocaust happened in the ancient world. In other words, Jews would come to a place, they would make it prosperous. When they got rich, people would take their money and drive them out. So there are now geneticists who are wondering, do our genes bear the imprint of all our ancestors' troubles? And are we doomed to repeat it? Again and again. I don't know. But but I read in um, one of the Jewish newspapers, the foreword, that there are geneticists looking into are Jews marked by all the troubles we've lived through. Now, I don't know the answer to that. But designer clothes are a buffer. <laughs> against, against the, the Holocaust. <laughs> really? What? And shoes. Right. 
Shoes really help, don't they? They do really help. Whether you've gained five or lost five. Right, exactly. There's always a there's nice always. shoe. There's always. And uh, <laughs> there's always a nice shoe. And you go, I can't wear spikes anymore. No. Can you? I never could. I'm so clumsy. I couldn't. I can't wear them. But the square heels I like a lot. And these things, the one... Oh, nice. I like those. You know, those are for people whose feet can't get into... I gave all of the stilts to one of my assistants. Lucky girl. She you know, was. Yes. But my granddaughter, Bet says, I'm not going to let my feet grow <laughs> because grandma has the greatest shoes. <laughs> so, so she's, yeah. There are some left. Good for her. And your bonus item, number six. daughter Molly reminds me I will never really be the boss. The other day I said to my my husband, I said, I miss my mother. He said, she's here in the shape of your daughter. (laughs) Is that right? Molly is a critic. Molly is, um, oh, God, she is everything my mother was, but worse. She Molly is a Leo, born on Bill Clinton's birthday, August 19th. She is the boss of everything and everyone. And, <laughs> but, you know, she says, Mommy, you have to sell that house in Connecticut. For God's sake, you've had it 40 years. I say, Molly, I've written 12 books in that house. So what? Wow. She's <laughs> Get tough. Get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and she's really tough, but she's really sweet. And she is. She's. She's and so re- brilliant. She's brilliant. I agree. And so are you. Erica, thank you so much. It's really, it's really fun to talk to you. Really fun to talk to you. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with your host, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Erica Jong, author of the new book of poetry, The World Began With Yes. Her latest novel is Fear of Dying. Read it. It's fantastic. You can follow Erica on Twitter at Erica Jong, or her website is ericajong.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos about all the things we spoke about here today. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 